Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparutade sangamatasataura ye sorawantabamunjandu satang. So this afternoon, it's about reflecting on the way it is. And in this word, reflecting, again, I repeat, it's not thinking, it's about just watching, being a witness to the way it is. And instead of looking outward at the objects that you see or hear, smell, taste, or touch, you're looking inward at the the way you feel the emotions or the confusion or the doubt or the agreement or whatever you feel when you hear me talking. So I try to talk about the way things are. My refuge is in the Dhamma And reflecting on the experience of being born and living a lifetime, you know, there's a lot of memories, habits, patterns, emotional habits that, that operate according to the conditioning or the conditions of the moment. So the conditions for the moment are like this, this ref reflectiveness to turn inward and just observe. And just notice the tendency to want to define or name or qualify your own feelings. Because this is a realm of emotion that we're experiencing through these forms. We we have no matter how rational, reasonable we try to be as civilized, educated human beings, we have emotional habits, and we feel happy or sad or elated or depressed or angry or confused or doubtful or worried, anxious, insecure. Whatever words you want to use to, to uh, define what you feel, you don't need to define it really, but just be the witness. It is the way it is. For example, right now, you can't, you didn't choose the way you're feeling right now. You didn't come into the Dharma Hall and decide to be reflective, and you may, if that's your intention, but the actual 
feeling of the moment, emotional response to the situation is the way it is, which you didn't choose. So we're very conditioned, as I've reiterated many times, to react to life. And we're very much programmed, conditioned to, to uh, from early childhood, to react in a certain way. And so this, this conditioning is, uh, is both intellectual and emotional. It's about feeling. A feeling realm is like this. Just notice your body. It's all a very sensitive form. And, uh, you know, sometimes we like to be insensitive, not feel things. Because uh, it's the relentless sensitivity that we have to experience through a lifetime can be both pleasant and unpleasant. And because that's the, what sensitivity amounts to, it's not about just pleasantness or happiness or positivity, but whatever is born dies. So babies are adored, they admired, they like to kiss babies. You, when uh, you see a newborn baby, you ooh and ah, isn't he sweet, pretty, and babies are lovable. When you're old, you're no longer lovable. So they don't do that when you're old. <laughs> because this is what old age is like. You're no longer lovable, you're no longer adorable in terms of appearance. Like babies are innocent human forms and they bring out that kind of nurturing in most of us, the nurturing, loving aspect, admiration, adoration, which brings a newborn child into a acceptable, loving presence, hopefully, if it's like that for most of us. So, you, but you can't have old age without birth. So every old person was born, grows up, gets old, and then dies. And that's, you know, birth and growing up can be considered happy times or uh, many of uh, many people's childhood memories are unhappy ones. Teenage is a very difficult time for most human beings because you're, you're between childhood and adulthood. And your emotions, how do we deal with, with emotions? Because they, they're expressions of our feelings. So we tend to suppress them. <clears throat> We try, you know, in the stiff upper lip kind of attitude of don't make a scene, get over it. And, uh, you know, this is oftentimes the advice in regards to emotional expressions. And so, you know, when we learn to suppress our emotions, then we become neurotic. 
because we we're frightened of we're frightened of them. We don't understand them, and uh, they can be violent. We can get we can lose our temper and just throw tantrums, curse and swear, or even kill or murder somebody because of the emotional nature that maybe we've suppressed and not witnessed to. Then we fall in love, and that is a pleasant emotion. So that is, then we, we I can fantasize and, and romanticize about the feeling of being in love with somebody. And that's, uh, you know, that's very much the, the fairy tale fantasy of meeting the right person and living happily ever after. <clears throat> so that's, uh, you know, how we react, how we're conditioned to, to look at life. Many people brought up in very traumatic childhoods and families uh, being orphans or rejected in, in childhood and so the, the suffering of that, of feeling rejected when in childhood and, and teenage needs to be understood, child, innocent child needs to be loved. Because that gives them the security, confidence as an individual human being. Then as we go older, we kind of, teenage years, many of us challenge our parents and what they've told us. We rebel or confront and uh, because we no longer are innocent and we start thinking uh, in a different way than what we're conditioned to believe and think. So then that's the difference, a sense of rebellion or our resistance to to the society, to the family, to the religion. <clears throat> so when we say somebody's very emotional, that's usually a criticism. In my cultural background, being emotional means you're you're just. Uh, all over the place, uh, can't be trusted because you're just lost in your feelings. And then to be unemotional makes one just cold and, and uh, we tend to see everything in a critical way and just spend our time trying to control ourselves not to feel, not to react, not to get angry, not to be confused. So that's why society is the way it is, wherever it is, here in England or any other country, these kind of conditions are part of the human experience. So then when we talk about intellectual reason and logic, you know, modern education is about 
training the brain to be reasonable. Reason is highly regarded. Logic is, is highly regarded to think logically. And, and thinking and reason and logic are not emotions. They're conditions which, when you're just caught in trying to understand everything with your intellect, you, you form strong views about what's right and what, how things should be. What you should be, yourself or somebody else. And so then we judge everybody, judge ourselves, judge the society according to a kind of reasonable idealism. So ideals have no emotions. Like when we think of um, a perfectly just and fair society, a really democratic society where everyone votes because of they're reasonable, not emotional, they're educated, and they choose, they know what's right and wrong. And, and then we hope to have a, a stable, modern society that will last. But when you are the witness of the way things are, you realize that no matter how beautiful the ideal might be, ideals are created perceptions with thoughts about how things should be. But at this moment, whatever you're feeling is the way it is. Maybe it's not reasonable. Maybe you're not feeling reasonable or logical. But when you, when you observe, when you're the observer, then you, we, just like when we observe, when we try to look inward with the ego, we become critical. Because <clears throat> that's the nature of the intellect, is good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. So we, we try to be reasonable about ourselves, about our feelings, and um, people say, you know, I should, I get angry, but I shouldn't, and I feel jealous, and I know that's a stupid emotion, and, and they go on and on. It's being kind of reasonable according to an ideal man or woman. So, and then, that, then we tend to feel guilty about our emotions, about how we actually feel. If they aren't according to the ideal that, we, that we've created. Hello? <laughs> you want to talk to me, Ajahn Sir? <laughs> So witnessing or reflecting is is a different taking a different position than being the person who's thinking and creating ideals and making value judgments about life, about yourself, about the world. And that's why 
in Buddha Dhamma, we talk about the way it is. So this, this, this simple phrase, the way it is, notice is a thought, but it's not about being reasonable or sensible about self. It's just a pointer to be the witness of the way it is that each one of us is experiencing individually. Like none of us can feel exactly the same way in the same moment. And when we try to describe our feelings, we, we, we get caught in the judgmental language, judgmental language about it's wonderful or horrible or I should or I shouldn't, I like and I don't like. And it goes on and on. It was just, uh, just trying to judge everything according to the way it should be or the way you think you should be or the way you think somebody else should be. So this kind of, you know, how things should be is about ideals. Society should be a fair, just, democratic society where everybody's equal and uh, fair, Everything's fair and just, and uh, we, we're sensitive to each other. We open our hearts to life. We, we love everybody. We spread metta, loving kindness all over the world. And we, you know, we, we can have moments where we actually feel like that through positive thinking. So like positive thinking helps us to feel, to kind of love everybody at the same moment, but it's still positive thinking that does that. It's by thinking positively and refusing to, to observe negative thinking or bad thinking or wrong thinking. So we go on a metta retreat and we spend 10 days thinking good thoughts, resisting bad ones. And after a while we do feel this kind of unconditioned love for all creatures and, and uh, because uh, we've conditioned ourselves to be positive according to an ideal of loving kindness, metta practice. But then when you go home, can you sustain that? When you go back to work with your colleagues, your people you work with, the society you live in, is it, is it really lovable is, uh, all the time, the way it should be? Can you maintain unconditioned love uh, as a constant, uh, experience in the present moment. You know, it's the positive thinking has its values not to be despised, but also has its limitations because it's still thinking and being attached to positive thinking and resisting negative thinking. 
where negative thinking, you know, when we th just think negatively, the world is no good, it has no meaning, there's no God, it's just survival, get along and survive as best you can, take what you can, and nobody else cares, and that's negative thinking, being obsessed with negative thinking, or being depressed, thinking about all the mistakes or the meaningless of your life, or you're no good, or you're inferior, or you're, you, you're not what you should be, or you can't, you can't succeed like others, and you feel envy and jealousy, and, and you get depressed because the, the society, the world, the family you live in, you think you're obsessed with criticisms towards yourself. You blame yourself for what's wrong with the world. And when, like in grief, when somebody you love dies, passes away, the tendency is to think about where did they go? Is there, where is my mother now? And uh, then we have various scenarios for that. We do think positively she's up in heaven or she's, been taken in as a two-seat of heaven. She's much happier now because the devas are always happy and beautiful. And that makes us feel good about the absence of our mother. <coughs> or if you say, well, you know, there's no heaven, no deva realms. Your mother's dead, just face it. Stiff upper lip, don't cry, don't make a scene. And uh, it embarrasses the family if you, if you get caught in a crying fit and, and on and on like that, because we resist our feelings. But reflection on emotion is, not, is, is very simple because Past, when emotions you had in the past are memories. And the emotions you expect to have in the future are Im imagination. But the feeling right now that each one of you is individually experiencing in a separate form is the way it is. <clears throat> and that's reflecting on it. So reflecting isn't trying to convince yourself with just positive thoughts or to be caught in just negativity and bitterness and resentment, but all these emotions, whether they're positive or negative, whether you want to just live your life thinking good thoughts and, and uh, trying to be a totally loving presence as an individual, or whether you're caught in depression or negativity or futility, or hatred, or prejudices, biases, taking sides with polit political leaders. <clears throat> For example, at this time, like war, none of us want war. <clears throat> so, and war is 
is not an ideal, it's a, it's a plague because it's all people, uh, human beings are always at war. There's always some war going on. Whether it's political or physical war, war is bad and it shouldn't be. And we've got to create peace as a permanent, stable condition in the world. That's, that's how it should be. So war is how it shouldn't be. And, and a stable, fair League of Nations, United Nations working together to save the planet is how it should be. So these are ideals. And just pointing to ideals are perfect, perfect justice, perfect fairness, perfect equality, no racial prejudices, no anti-Semitism, no, and everybody is fair and judge and helping each other with loving kindness. That's how it should be. But life for all of us isn't how it should be, or rarely is. But it is the way it is. And that's where we, what real meditation is about, is being the observer of change, not the changing condition that you think you are or believe you are. Like as a separate human entity, we're, you know, we're separate, so I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, that creates this space between us. I have, I have a certain position in the community and you have a certain position. You're a bhikkhu or a siladhara or an agarika or an agarika or a lay woman or lay man, and these are conventions. And we, 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 our nature at first is to attach to the, to that, to those uh, perceptions. So it's uh, like wanting to have a title, wanting to become something that you don't feel you are right now, or <clears throat> is you know the desire to become or desire to get rid of. And so desire, the word dhanha in Pali, are you, is your true nature desire? Are you just a form of desire? Is desire is what you are? You know, so when you attach to yourself as a separate person, then you become a desire form because the human body is a desire form. Sensitivity is about desire. Feeling, we want to feel certain, we want certainty. We want permanent kind of safety. We want love. We want to be accepted for the way we are. And so these are desires, some of them quite good desires. Desire doesn't mean, you know, in English, desire usually has a pejorative tank to it. 
like if we say somebody is just filled with desires, that usually is a criticism. But reflecting on desire is to develop wisdom because to reflect on desire, to observe the desire that you, desires that you actually experience in your life without judging them is liberation, is enlightenment. So in the second noble truth, the three kinds of desires I love to reflect on because I found in my early years as a monk is reflecting on the desire in three forms because my cultural conditioning was very much based on the pejorative term desire. And then it becomes more like ambition or you know, it can be just about sexual desire or ambition, desire to end the world, desire to kill yourself, desire to kill somebody else, desire to get rid of what your, your feelings, desire to become enlightened. And are you a desire to become enlightened? Are you here to become enlightened? And we are, we're here to, you know, first we join the Sangha to become enlightened, to get, to stop suffering from life. But then we can observe the desire to become enlightened. It's like this. It's not saying that you shouldn't have that desire, but be the observer, which is not desire. Mindfulness, sati sampajanya, mindfulness, awareness, conscious awareness, isn't desire. It's not a created form. It's here and now, and what we're all experiencing at this moment, we couldn't experience this moment if we're not conscious, if there was no consciousness. So in the basic teaching that I like to encourage is to trust this awareness because it's not a desire. It's a simple witnessing, observing. It's like this. And then that cultivating that means doesn't mean to personally try to be a witness, but just be the witness. It's a matter of just being here and now, it's, it's the way it is. And you kind of rest in this being aware. You're not trying to be aware anymore, or trying to be mindful, or trying to get wisdom or enlightenment or anything else, but suddenly these words the, these words that we cling to, ideals that we hold to, become phenomena changing. Their very nature is unstable. 
And as long as we seek our identity in what's unstable, we're going to experience suffering. Because this realm is about suffering. Being born, imagine what a woman giving birth has to endure to give birth. And that's, that, that's part of life, procreating the species. But there's a lot of physical suffering. When somebody dies, we experience loss and grief. And we, we, if we don't witness grief, or be the observer of grief, then we get caught in trying to suppress it, deny it, or get lost in just feeling miserable and grieving for somebody, wondering where they are at this time. So the actual bhavana or meditation is very simple. It's when I was giving a reflection a few weeks ago on right effort is no effort. It's effortless. It's more like just listening, observing, watching. And that's not, I don't put any effort to do that. I just, it's just natural. I don't create when I think I have to be mindful or I have to meditate, I have to get samadhi, then, I, then I'm thinking again. And that's my personality was conditioned to try to get enlightened, to get samadhi, to become uh, an arahant, uh, and uh, on and on like that. The Buddhist conditioning is like that. Is you, you feel you have... When you're trained as a Buddhist monk, you have this Vinaya, which all is about right and wrong, and a, a kusala, a kusala dhamma. Everything is judged according to whether it's good, bad, skillful, unskillful, and either skillful or unskillful. And that takes thought, that takes judgmental thinking. And so we become conditioned by the conventions that we trust and we practice within those conventions. But the conventions themselves are impermanent and, and they bind us to the sense of right and wrong, skillful, unskillful, and either skillful or unskillful where pure awareness, conscious awareness, isn't some kind of acquired skill as a personal attainment. When people ask me, uh, what have I attained? This year will be my 57th pantha, 58 if you count the Samanera. That's a lot. Uh, in terms of the way I think as a person is a long time. I should have attained something after all these years as a Buddhist monk, having a great teacher like Ajahn Chah, and, you know, this sense of have you, what have you attained through all your meditation, your asceticism, your training, your... 
uh, and the idea of that being a monastic, a samana, is some kind of way to attain enlightenment. So I actually witnessed, I started deliberately thinking, I want to be enlightened. But just watching the thoughts themselves. And then, then the thing, just thinking I am enlightened or I'm not enlightened. They're just empty words, phenomena that has no core, no real essence but is conditioned into us. So then the humble part of me, people think, you know, Ajahn Sumato, you've been a bhikkhu for so long, you must have attained some level of enlightenment. And uh, because that's the way people think, you know, when they look at me, they think there's a Buddhist monk, old Buddhist monk who's had a lifetime to practice the Dhamma. What has he attained? What has he realized? So the realization is the re reality of no self, which is not an attainment. Try to deny yourself. You know, just think, I don't exist when you're experiencing uh, the emotional habits you have, uh, the weather being hot or cold, the, the, the age of your body, the sickness or ailments that affect it, of losing your loved ones, of being disappointed, being betrayed by friends, and on and on like that, is that, you know, that is what we remember. But are we really a feeling, a physical body, a personality? You know, this is a question to ask yourself. And this witnessing is impersonal. Mindfulness, awareness, when you think I'm very mindful, I'm not very mindful, those are thoughts based on the idea that you are a separate personality, separate form. But when you realize your true nature, conscious awareness is not personal, it's anatta, non-self. And this is, uh, you know, in many religions, other religions, Buddha, in Theravada Buddhism, they're very clear, they don't name, like Dhamma, the word Dhamma isn't, uh, you know, is not personal. It doesn't, you can't make a personal form of Dhamma. So you have symbols like Dhamma Jaka. But when we take refuge in Dhamma, what, what are we taking refuge in? in? In a personal take on the word Dhamma? the way we've defined Dhamma or believe in Dhamma. I've heard people say, I really believe in Dhamma. Dhamma is my refuge. And so, but what do they mean by that? Or in other religions, they ask you, do you believe in God? And uh, what is that? You say, I, I don't believe there's any God. 
there's too much sorrow, too much unfairness, too much violence, brutality on planet Earth. A good God, a loving Father, and then you create a, a male image, a patriarchal image of God as being a man, like a patriarch, that's all loving, but then creates a, a planet that is quite beautiful and magical in its own right, but also very brutal. Because what's going on on planet Earth is there's so much brutality when we, we're in the age of reason and logic, where we, we have ideals about working together to save the planet, which are very good ideals. But are we conditioned to actually do something for that? You know, we, we can go on protests, peace marches, try to have rebellions against oppression or authoritarian fascism and all things like that. We can take personal actions against brutality. Which is like creating the, you know, then we suffer from that, from having to be caught in the momentum of violence, protest, hatred, anger, shaking your fists, condemning, making value judgments about the enemy. But with awareness, conscious awareness, it, it, it isn't judging the enemy. Feeling some somebody or something is your enemy is a thought, is a feeling that you can witness to. It is the way it is. So like I was brought up during the Second World War and America was fighting the Germans and Japanese. And so then they had the propaganda. Propaganda is always about demonizing the enemy. So you're brought up as a child to see things in terms of the enemy or demons. They're not even human. And so then that was, uh, that's nece the necessity of war to demonize. So now we demonize Vladimir Putin and we demonize uh, whatever we feel is enemy or bad or wrong. But we can be a witness to it. It's not that, you know, that being wrong or right or taking sides, but witnessing, feeling like somebody is a demon, it's like this. And it arises and ceases And when the whole sense of demonizing has disappeared, it's, it's silent and empty. The true nature of conscious awareness is silence, peace.
peace. That's ultimate peace, where we're united. Whether you hate me or love me or whatever, that unity lies in conscious awareness, not in personal attempts to create peace out of ideas. So this is, this is a reflection to, to encourage this confidence because the world, society, the wars that are going on, the, the prejudices, the biases, religious prejudices, racial biases, class identities, all these are created forms. They're not what you really are. They're not what you're looking for when you come here to become enlightened. Enlightenment is here and now and is seeing things as they are, that all conditions are impermanent. That's why you can't find permanent peace in just trying to create a, world, a peaceful world of separate individuals. Because as individuals, we, we know just how many emotional conflicts arise in a sangha because of separate feelings and attitudes. Because we're all different. And we can't help it. We can't help being different from each other because that's what we call the karma or condition phenomena. It's all about differences, about sizes, qualities, male and female right and wrong, good and bad. Condition phenomena is unstable, so right and wrong, good and bad, heaven and hell, they're, they're, they're creations of the mind that we tend to seek identity through believing in what we're told rather than finding out ultimate reality which is apparent here and now. So the Buddha's teaching, the Four Noble Truths, the basic fundamental teaching of Buddhism, is, po is a pointer at that. Why didn't the Buddha, when he was enlightened, set everything right? Why couldn't he just convert everybody because he was an enlightened master? He was the Buddha. And he claimed to be the Buddha when he, his, when he was on his way to Varanasi to meet his colleagues. Some ascetic asked him, you are so radiant, what, are you, what, are you, what have you discovered? And he said, I am the perfectly enlightened Buddha. And the ascetic didn't believe him. So that's not a good proposition to take. I'm the perfectly enlightened Buddha, because when you try to convince people that you are enlightened and the perfectly enlightened Buddha, you know, some might believe and get down and bow, others might throw rocks at you or rotten eggs or tomatoes. You don't know, because that's, that's a statement made with imperfect words. 
with words that who knows what a perfectly enlightened Buddha really is as a concept. So we, we have the words of perfectly enlightened Buddha, but when he actually met his five friends in Varanasi, in Saranath, he didn't say, I'm the perfectly enlightened Buddha. He said, there is suffering, the causes, the end of suffering, and the way of non-suffering. So that's the Four Noble Truths. So that shows the wisdom. Actually, his first sermon was to that ascetic, where he proclaimed himself as the perfectly enlightened one. But he obviously realized that 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 just can be totally, it can be blindly believed in. People are very uh, gullible and easily believe in things, or they're very critical or don't believe in things. So belief is very personal, what we believe in and what we don't believe in. But belief is, is based on thoughts, on words, on concepts, and they're all impermanent conditions that arise and cease. So then ask yourself, what doesn't arise and cease? And this I have spent a lot of time investigating. What doesn't arise and cease? And then the this silence, conscious silence. I call it sound of silence, but it's not a sound, it can be misleading. This this silent background to all the phenomena that arises and ceases in my brain and my feelings, thoughts, habits, the life I live, you know, it's still the arising and ceasing of phenomena. But what is permanent and fully here and now, the still point, the eye of the storm is the silence behind all the noise and problems and wars and confusion of the world as we experience through these very sensitive emotional forms that we have to live with till they pass away. So when you have faith, then in in Pali, the word faith is sata, and it's translated as faith. So faith, English word faith can be blind faith. I just believe what my mother told me. I just believe in what the preacher in the pulpit tells me is right and wrong. I just believe what the Buddhists tell me. I just believe in because it's right, it's good. So I believe in it. But, and so that, that has a certain uh, kusala or skillfulness in believing in goodness and, and uh, wanting to 
get rid of the evil forces. You know, I personally don't want the evil forces. I wish there weren't any evil forces. And as a person, But belief is, is uh, you know, based on conditioning. You believe or you don't believe or you're unsure, maybe it's true, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't any God, I'm an agnostic. But what is God in reality, in terms of here and now, is consciousness, Dhamma. It's awareness here and now. And it's not a patriarch, it has no form, but it's realized individually. You can realize it yourself. Ben Bajitang So this is, in terms of Dhamma, it's to be realized, each one for themselves. If I try to make you realize Dhamma by describing it, by endlessly trying to convince you to believe in Dhamma. That's not bhajatang, that's not, you don't realize it for yourself, you're just believing what I'm telling you. But when you actually trust awareness as your refuge, then you realize your true nature and, and that is pure. Our true nature is basically perfect and pure, it's Dhamma. Not Kusala Dhamma or Akusala Dhamma. Skillful or unskillful or neither. So the forms, like waves on the sea, they can be ripples, just the ripples in the water, or they can be tsunamis. Ripples on the on a clear pond are pretty, and we paint, do paintings of ripples on a pond. But a tsunami is is evil. It kills people. It destroys huge waves that overpower everything and destroy. That's evil. So we don't want tsunamis, ripples are fine. So we try to satisfy ourselves with being ripples rather than tsunamis. But even ripples are impermanent. They can't, no way of sustaining ripples on the, on the lake. But what is perfect is conscious awareness. So I offer this as your reflection for today.